Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. We are in our series, No Matter What. And I'm so excited to be preaching this morning. What a privilege. As you're turning there in your Bibles, the scripture will come up behind me if you don't have one this morning with you. But just to give you a background of this book, it's a four-chapter letter. The man writing it, his name is Paul, and he's writing it from a jail cell in AD 61. AD 61. And now I want to say that he, he first met this church eight or nine years previously in AD 52, 53. And he met them, and, and, and when he met them, he led a woman as a slave and a Gentile to the Lord. And this caused chaos in the city, and they weren't happy with this, so they threw him in the jail cell there. So this book that he's writing is bookended. You can read the launch of the church in Acts chapter 16. But it's bookended with him, the start of the church with him in jail. Eight years later, he's writing to this church from jail. And everything happened in between was pain, sacrifice, being whipped, being thrown in jail, being maligned, being left by friends, by being dodging uh, bandits. And, and Paul tells he's had a tough time. So if you're wondering, if you've never read Philippians, I'd forgive you to think, what would Paul be writing this letter to, to them about? I can imagine after eight hellish years by our natural lenses, I would assume that this, re- this letter is written to either complain, life sucks, space, true, it really sucks, or maybe to self, or maybe to tell them to just keep their heads down and, and suck it up, guys, you know, I, I think it'll get better, I hope it'll get better, you know, maybe one of those very depressing letters. Anyone ever got one of those in the post? Some of them are the, got red light and they've got a photo of your car on them. Anyone ever got one of those? I get them quite a lot, every now and again. But I can imagine, if I wasn't familiar with the book, I would imagine his circumstances to me would dictate a very sad, defeated letter. Going, oh, woe is me, life is tough. I'm so, so sorry. But that's not what this letter is about. This four-chapter letter is, in a sense, a guide that Paul writes to you and I, but to the Philippian church, if I'm really first, a guide on how to have joy in a prison. If this was a book, that would be a catchy title, How to Have Joy in a Prison. And I'm telling you people, snap it up. Oh, this is good stuff. And actually, we've preached a series under the title, No Matter What. And I want to, uh, this morning, move us along this, this tangent and push us a little bit further. And I'm burning with what God's got to say to us. But if we can participate just a little bit, because I feel we're too quiet. Can you say to the neighbor next to you, no matter what? No matter what. And maybe if you want to uh, encourage him, say to him, this preacher's going to be really, really good with you next to me. Just tell him, say that, say that, say this preacher's going to be good with you next to me. Brilliant. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. We're going to read it from the screen. Are you guys all ready? Here we go. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Let's just pause there before we re- jump ahead. He starts off by saying, whatever happens. Now I want to tell you this. Trump or Clinton? He says, whatever happens. He's not stressed. He says, Zuma, Malema or Maimani? Whatever happens. Rejoice in the Lord. You say, Petrol rises or falls? He says, no matter what, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Rioting and burning of the universities. He says, never mind, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. 
This is what he says. He goes on, he says, the Springboks lose or they lose badly. Whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. He says, sickness, rejoice in the Lord, whatever happens. Financial pressures, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Relational tensions, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. He says, job dissatisfaction, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Welcome. He says, rejoice in the Lord, not in circumstances. He doesn't say, rejoice when it's a good time, but when it's bad, then you pull back a little bit, just be a bit more somber. No, he says, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Now, he reminds us from the get-go of chapter 3 that we are spiritual people and that we have authority over our joy. You and I are reminded that we have authority over our joy. We're not held captive by circumstances. Our joy is not held captive by what he or she says to us. Because I've heard it too often. I'll say it again and again. People say, he just ruined my day. And I say, who is he? And why have you given him so much authority over your emotions? Paul says at the beginning, whatever happens, you rejoice in the Lord. Then he goes on. He says this here. I never get tired of telling you these things. And I do it to safeguard your faith. I love that. He says, I never get tired of telling you this. This is not some religious, trite little saying that, you know, people say, bless you, brother. Yes, bless you. How are you? I'm fine. Like something that rolls off the tongue easy. It's not that. This is something he says, I never get tired of saying this. It's not a joke, a dad joke that you tell. You go, oh, not again, dad. That's a boring joke. No, this is something that burns in it. It doesn't just fall off his tongue easily. It's something he says, I never grow tired of telling you this. And what is he telling them? He's telling them this. Why? Because it will safeguard your faith. Let me tell you, joy and faith are linked. Here in this passage, he says, rejoice in the Lord because it will safeguard your faith. Joy, your joy levels and your faith are linked. And I want to say this, too many people's faith is being shipwrecked because they've tied their joy to circumstances and not to Christ. I've seen too many people start off strong for Jesus and then fade away. Why? Because their joy was tied to what happened around them. But not the person of Jesus. Joy and faith are linked. We move on and then he says this incredible thing. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says this. Watch out for those dogs. Those people who do evil. Those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now let me say this. This Paul, as I've been preaching, he's saying it's a letter of joy. Now some of you might go, maybe it's some happy-go-lucky thing. Paul, lovely, happy guy. Can I tell you, this is not some floating, hippie, laissez-faire, easy come, easy go, fake it till you make it, pseudo joy. Try to say that three times fast. This is not like some herbal tea, get another facial joy, like, ah, everything's happy and nice. No, no, this is Paul, this is not a pep talk. This is not a pep talk, like, come on guys, have more joy, be happy, sing with me. No, he's not doing that. This is not a pep talk, because pep talks won't sustain you when you're in the valley of the shadow of death. A pep talk saying, you can do it, brother, will be empty when you're faced with death head on. A pep talk won't satisfy and will do nothing for you and sustain you in the presence of your enemies. A pep talk will do nothing to you in the day of trouble when the news from the doctor says, it's cancer. Too real? Too early? Maybe, I, I pray not, because a pep talk is not what Paul's doing here. Actually, he is fired up about your joy. This man's got fire burning in his eyes in the prison cell. And, and, and it reminded me of a little old lady called Mother Teresa. Anyone ever seen the pictures of her? This frail little woman who, who changed the face of India by loving people in poverty and brokenness and caring for them. And a very loving woman. 
when they in, one guy interviewed her and said, Mother Teresa, it was quite gentle trying to get to her and said, what, what, what do you feel when you walk past a, a poor and sick person in India? And her answer was short, sharp, and to the point, and she said this, anger. I feel angry. And it wasn't some anger at the, at the person, but it was a field designer that said, this is not right. Why? I'm not gonna, I don't want to settle when the, the injustice is happening. And this is the same sort of thing that Paul is feeling. Paul, in this moment, this letter, is fighting for our joy. Too many Christians are sitting passively and letting their joy be hijacked by circumstances when their divine right is to rejoice in the Lord. Paul's fighting for it. And so much so that he gets to this place where he says, watch out for those dogs. This is Paul. He's here and he's kicking down doors and taking names. And he's like, watch out for those dogs. And now this is not your light, little fluffy little chihuahua at home dog that you have a hair perm. No, this is a rabid, he's talking the rabid, frothing at the mouth, hairless mongrel that they sing about in the Who Let the Dogs Out song. That type of dog mangy thing he's saying those dogs and who was he talking about there was a people group called the Judaizers and these were a bunch of people Paul went to uh, was taking the gospel saying it's Jesus alone Gentiles were being saved and then as he left in his way came a bunch of Jewish Christians who came in and they said to the new Gentiles who got saved who were loving Jesus and the freedom they walked and said yeah yeah that's good I know Paul told you it was just Jesus but actually you must also be circumcised basically they're saying we had to do it. You also have to do it. It sucks. So we're not paying the price if you're not. You know? Got that thing. You know? They came and they put this bondage and this weight on people. And they started saying, actually, actually, yeah, yeah, Jesus is good. But you must celebrate the Hebrew festivals as well. You, you, you have to do what we do as well. And they started to put things on people. And Paul actually called them dogs. And can I tell you why this is huge? It's because Jewish people used to call Gentiles dogs. You find it all over in scripture. And Paul turns the table on them and says, no, you're the dogs. Pulling people away from joy, shipwrecking their joy and tying it to other things besides Christ alone. He says, watch out for those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh. This is not nice talk. And in verse 4, I love it. We move on very quickly. He says, for we are the worship by the Spirit of God or the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human efforts, though I could have confidence in my own efforts, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. This translation doesn't do it justice. Another other do. Other English translations fall short. But the original Greek is basically Paul getting up and talking smack. It's like he's just he's talking trash to guys. You know that sort of moment saying like going, "You think you're cool? Come have a look at me. Come, come, come." That's basically he's going. If anyone thinks they can boast, bring it on. I've got even more reason. So he's basically saying, Judaizers, come here, bring your stupid laws. Let me show you what I can do to him. I'm even better. This is great Bible talk. This is Paul on fire this morning. Come on, Paul, preach it. But this is where we get to, and then we're going to carry on with it. Let's pray before I get too excited. Father, I pray this morning for us as a people, as your word speaks to us and shapes us. I pray, God, would, the, would you let the black and white text here of Philippians chapter 3 leap up before us. Our hearts. Grip our hearts, Jesus. Please don't let go. Grip our hearts and don't let go. Jesus now pray. Amen. Very quickly, I'm, I hope you can see I'm quite fired up this morning as well. 
my temptation is to, I've got to resist the temptation to just pour out everything that I'm, that's bubbling inside of me. God's been doing stuff inside of me the last month or so. In this series, in the last few weeks, but I, 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 so I'm going to try and keep it short because I know that, I know that people have got places to go. Eh? Anyone, you got somewhere to go today? No, we can keep going. All right, fine, all of it. Here we go. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. No, I'm joking. No, but, but I'm going to resist that temptation, but I've been burning in my, in my soul and actually saying to God, God, I want my life to come. I want my life to count. I don't know about you, but I want my life to count. On Friday, Fiona and I, with our whole family, we went and I think the gynecologist was quite shocked to see the whole tribe troop into his office and squeeze into a thing to have a glimpse of our baby little girl, you know? This little baby on the, on this, at 16 weeks. And we look at this little baby and this perfect body, and this, and I'm just, and, and my, my, my fa- all the family are taking photos of the scan. I'm just trying to have a look, right? Can I have a look? Sorry. Sorry. But, but just, as I'm seeing that, going, God, I want my life to count. For that little person, I want my life to count. You know, and then, and then my incredible wife, and I see her, and I'm going, I want my life to count for her. I want to live an insipid, boring life. I want, I want to be, I want to be burning with the gospel. And my wife goes, Joe, he's counting for the things of the kingdom. I, I look at my family, and I go, I want my life to count. I look at this church, and you can ask my wife, I'm not lying, I think about you often. By name, we talk about you, and I wonder how they're doing, how their children, how's their children's health, praying for people. This, this week, praying often, how's Amber Rose's health, how is she doing? You know, that's a, I think of you, I think of people, I haven't seen them for a while, I hope they're doing, doing well. It's not out of a pastoral duty, it's because I, I want my life to count. I want my life to count. I want our lives to count for the gospel. And then we go to a conference on Tuesday, an every nation conference with people from around the world. They give feedback of the different regions and church plants. And a guy from Asia gets up and says, we now have 25, in, in our 26 Asian nat- nations, we've got 25 churches in 25 of the 26 countries. And they're going, there's one country left and no one's in. Who will go? And I'm watching and listening to these talk of men and women who are giving their lives for this thing. And then a guy from Europe gets up and says, actually, tough. He says, we've got nine churches in Europe. And the place starts to clap. He says, no, don't clap. Three years ago when I reported, we had ten. One shut down. He says, not going well. They're shrinking. It's hard. We need help. Please pray. And as we're praying, they called all the people up who lead churches in Europe and, and, and taking the gospel back to Europe, where it first came from. I'm watching this. I'm, I'm weeping. I'm crying because I'm going, God, I want my life to count. Yeah. I want my life to count. I don't want to just do the boring things. I want my life to count. And we find this passage here, when the, uh, this passage that Paul, he's got the same passion, I can believe. He, he's, he's also doing a lot of counting. He's in prison, I can imagine. He's counting, and in a sense, he's counting as if he's weighing up his life. He's weighing up things in his life against the other, the other pleasure and what he's living for. Say, what am I actually living for? Is my life counting? And I can, in my head, I can imagine this passage, Paul in the prison has got in his head a seesaw. You know that children's playground toy? The one side goes down, the one side goes up, you all know? Okay, good. People just looking at me blankly. I'm like, do I have to act it out even more? No, I won't. But I can imagine this, because then we see in chapter verse 5 and 6, if we go to verse 5 and 6, he says this, he says this, he starts to list, he lists seven things that were once were important. He says this, number one, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. Number two, he said, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. Number three, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Number four, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. Other scriptures say a Hebrew of Hebrews. Number five, he says, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. Number six, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And number seven, he says, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. 
he, he in a sense, he's loading this side of the seesaw. These are things that once were important to me, once had value. He's counting the, what, what these things were. And he puts them on that side, and the weight of them is huge. It's impressive. Actually, if you look at these things, we can break down these things. I'll go to the next, uh, if we can skip quickly to the, the two slides forward. There are five things, five categories that we can simplify these things to. Are we there? A list of five. There we go. Five things. Those seven things. You can list them into five things. Number one, family heritage. He's listing things. You know, uh, something that he, not, he didn't do anything to get this thing. Just what he stumbled into. Circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, pure, pure blood of, of Israel. Or Hebrew of Hebrews. From the tribe of Benjamin. Now, being from the tribe of Benjamin was an impressive thing. Because that tribe was a faithful tribe. It was one of the tribes that faith, uh, stayed faithful to God's covenants and promises. And actually, the first king of Israel came from that tribe. Do anyone know his name? Saul. The first king of Israel, Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. And I don't think it's a coincidence that our friend Paul over here was first named Saul. He was named after because this family took pride in this pure blood tribe of Benjamin. The family heritage. Secondly, social status. This tribe was prestigious because the land that the tribe occupied had the temple in it. The tribe of Benjamin was a prestigious thing. They had social statuses. It was a pinnacle of society. Third, he then talks about his biblical knowledge. Now, we, we the Pharisees in, in our New Testament lens sometimes get a bad rap. Jesus gave him a hard time. But in their society, Pharisees were admired, were, were actually looked at with respect because these were guys who loved the word of God. They loved the law of God. So much so, they meditated on his law day and night. They found it upon their hearts. They, they went, pursued the law of God with everything they had. They did this thing and they practiced it and the, they had biblical knowledge to the nth degree. He, and he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That's me. Fourth, religious activity. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. A man who, who didn't take his, his job of being zealous for the things of God. Uh, his, he, in, in our terms, he was here early, setting up chairs. He was here late, packing down. He was visiting people, loving. He was doing religious activity, so much so that he was actually persecuting anyone that would mention that there was another way. And fifthly, finally, he boasted in his moral lifestyle. His moral lifestyle. It says, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. This man literally said, I was faultless. And Paul's not prone to lying. The commandments and all things. He said, I was faultless in terms of what the law asked me to do. Faultless. This is a man who's loading the bases. And can I tell you, when I look at that list, what do you notice? They're all good things. They're not bad things. Tell me, none of these are bad things. Family heritage, social status, not a bad thing. Biblical knowledge, that's great. Good things. Religious activity, moral lifestyle. It's good things. But here's the kicker. Is that Paul is basically saying in this passage, he's saying that it's... That it was good things that are keeping him from Christ. When often you hear that in church? Often you're saying, your sin is keeping you away from Jesus. Your brokenness. Can I tell you, Paul's saying, good things were keeping him away from Jesus. That's my point this morning. It's possible to love your family. It's possible to go to church. To take your kids to church. To have a good reputation with people. To know and love the word. To be active in church. To have good moral standards. And yet at the end of your life, have Christ say to you, wasted life. You can do all those things and God will say, and Jesus will say at the end, wasted. 
Your life didn't count. It was wasted. But not wasted. Paul tells us what is not a waste of life in verse 7 to 11. You can flick back. Verse 7 to 11. Next one down. He says this, yes, everything else is worth it. It's shared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ. And experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul is basically saying this, my biggest big point. He's saying it's all Jesus. It's Christ. He's saying Christ is the treasure chest of holy and infinite joy. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He says it's around this man, Jesus, which everything in our life should revolt. Paul in this sense of the the seesaw, he's loading this side up and he says actually with confidence, he can say when he loads that side up with all the good things in his life, he looks at this side and he sees Christ, Salborne, he sees Christ for who he is, not a religious uh, painting of him, not a religious glimpse of him, but the the Christ who lived and died and rose again, the the pearl of great price, the beautiful one, the all-consuming fire Jesus, the ancient of days, he sees this Jesus on this side of seesaw. And he looks at these things and he goes, rubbish! It's lost! Everything, everyone, every good thing is nothing compared to him. Your darling spouse, nothing compared to him. Your baby, yet to be born, nothing compared to him. Here's the kicker. Nothing without him. I want my life to count so much so Paul gets going and he says in the scripture in verse I think it's in verse 9 he says or verse 8 he says actually I consider everything rubbish now this is again where the translators I think did us an injustice that word rubbish they got I think it was, it was almost so offensive the word that Paul used was so offensive they're like we can't put it in the Bible and if Paul was here he'll say I didn't say that put my word in how many translators for you guys ready for it I consider everything else, even good things, as dung. One translation, we're going to get going here. He said, I consider everything as excrement. I consider all these good things, everybody, every person, compared to as human waste. Getting closer to the real meaning here. You ready for it? More English. Here we go. I consider everything here compared to him as a dirty diaper. I still don't know, quite understand the one yet, you know, but I'm getting there. One day, we'll be the season. This is what Isaiah actually says, takes that translation, says actually these things, these good things, are as filthy rags, menstrual, menstrual tampons. That's what he actually uses. I, I love my job, I'm just reading the Bible, sorry. <laughs> Can I tell you that? That's what the words he uses. It was offensive, but he says these good things compared to him are menstrual rags. That's what Paul is saying. He's fighting talk, fighting for us. Because I want to say when I read this text and I, and I hear my beating heart for the things of God, I go, it's radically different than what, Christian, what, what type of Christianity is being preached across our city, across our country, and other churches this morning. I read this and I go, I see what's in my life, and I go, it's radically different from how I live my life on a day-to-day basis. Can I tell you, I, I believe there's going to be a lot of people 
scriptures tell us this, that are going to be shocked when they get to heaven and, and, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things. Look at what we did for you. Good family, went to church, moral standards, I knew the Bible, I was a good guy. And he says to me, depart from me, I did not know you. Not my words, his. Don't try and feather Jesus' hair. Don't try and make him say things that meek and mild. This is Jesus. He's serious about our joy. Here's the question that I want to ask of you and I today. Maybe it sounds simplistic, but to me it's the deepest question I could ever ask. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Not, did you pray a prayer once? Not, did you slip up your hand at the back of a meeting once? Not, did you fill out a card? Because I can't find those things in the Bible. Those are just activators for our faith. But actually, do you know Him? I tell you this, we have found something worth losing everything for. And I would, I would hate to parade and do church with you for years and not you not hear this thing that he is worth losing everything for. Everything. Good things, bad things, trial, tribulation. I'll lose it all for the sake of him. Jesus said it himself. He said, unless you deny yourself, pick up your cross, pick up suffering and come follow me, you can have no part of me. He says, your mother and father are waiting for you. Who's my mother and father? I came to do what he has called me to do. This is not a thing to push, bash those things, but in the light of him, don't let them steal from you. Let me tell you this, in, in, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 and 45, I've written in my Bible, there's two stories Jesus tells, of two parables of what the kingdom of God is like. He says the kingdom of God is like a, a man who finds a hidden treasure in a field. And it says, and in his joy, he goes and sells everything so he can buy that field so he can have that treasure. I've underlined joy because it's not... And in his begrudging nature, well, I suppose I've got to give up some stuff for Jesus now. Ugh, I really like having a good old ciggy every now and again. Ugh. Really? In his joy, he sold everything for Jesus. This is not, not, we've sold people Christianity, that means, oh, you have to give up some stuff for him, you know? Tough gig, but yeah. Oh. No. When you see him, this is, and the next story underneath it says it's about a, a man who finds a per, some pearls, a merchant who finds pearls, and he sells everything to buy the pearls. And in the margin I've written there, we have found something worth losing everything for. I've written that in my Bible. To remind this, this wicked soul, this soul that, that tends and goes to passivity, that goes to selfishness, that goes to small living, that goes, runs to my pile of good things and goes, yes, I'm doing so well. Look at my pile. It's bigger than their pile. <laughs> it's amazing. We say, look at me. Rubbish compared to me. I want my life to count. I wrote this down. Radical cost equals radical reward. Radical cost equals radical reward. But when you find the radical reward, you look back and you go, that was no cost at all. It only seems like radical when on this side of the reward. But when you find Christ, you look back and go, rubbish. Keep it. I want him. I'm not trading him for anything. This is the pure gospel. This is the power of the gospel. Can I tell you, a lot of us aren't walking in the power of the gospel because we've added things to Jesus. Jesus, but I'm also going to try and please him. I'm also going to try and do things to, to, to make my pile okay. When he actually says, no, I'm the source of the thing. I'm the source of, I'm the power. Jesus is the power of the gospel to help us 
live our lives daily and, and bring all of that under His command and control. This is the permanence of the gospel. I want to land with this story. It's in the Bible. It's going to be a good one. There's a man named John the Baptist. Anyone heard of him? Cool. If you hadn't, here we go. John the Baptist is a man who Jesus said of him, no greater man born of woman. John, this is your superhuman cool guy. This is a guy who really, he has sold everything for Jesus. He, he is born in a great, he could have had the list, family heritage. He was the son of a priest. A, a much uh, a famous priest there. He had social status. He had biblical knowledge. He had religious activity, moral lifestyle. He had it all. And this is a man who really didn't care about anyone else and what they thought of him except for what Jesus thought of him. That he actually went so far that he actually he dressed as a strange man in the desert and ate weird food that put banting diets to shame. Honey and locusts. And this is, he lived like that and, he, and he, he declared the way. He said, prepare the way for Jesus. So repent. And this is a man who knew the word. And as he saw Jesus from a glimpse, he understand this man who some people might have looked at him by what he was wearing going, oh. What does this guy know? He's a bit of a religious nut job, maybe. But this man saw with prophetic eyes and saw Jesus coming towards him. And, and in his head, he saw 2,000 years of prophecy came together. And he says with accuracy, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He sees Jesus. This is a man who knew God. Radical man. And so much so, they said, Jesus, you baptize me. And Jesus said, no, no, I have to be baptized by you. So he does it. He obeys Jesus. And, and, and from that moment, he tells his disciples, John, success, a ministry that was rocking, had disciples queuing up to be his lackeys, to be queuing up to be his interns. And he said to him, actually, no, my job's done. Follow him. And in the height of thing, he gave up everything. He looked at the pile and said, I'm done. He's worth it. Take it all. He's worth it. And the story goes on that this is how it goes. And Jesus' ministry starts to climb. And he says, I must decrease. He must increase. And John is taking a start, stepping off the stage. Amazing man. And then tragedy happens. John was offensive, uh, standing on the word of God. He, he offends Herod, the king of the day, by calling out injustice and, and sin in, in, the, in, the, in the kingdom. So Herod has him thrown into prison and actually says, tomorrow I'm going to cut off your head. This is not some cute Bible story. This is ISIS, wah, cut off your head stuff. And while he's in prison, contemplating what it's going to feel like to have no head the next day, going, oh my goodness. All of a sudden, all the excitement, religious fervor, all that stuff has been going on. He gets nervous. Because he starts to count. He gets a seesaw and he goes, everything I've given up in my head, is it worth him? Is he worth it? Is it worth even leaving, losing my head for him? And John stresses, so John calls one of his old disciples, says, please can you go find Jesus and ask him, is he the one? And he's stressing. So the disciples go to Jesus. And now this is it. Jesus said, no greater man born of woman. Jesus said, if, if I was Jesus, I would have gone, guys, prison ministry, we've got to go visit. And maybe Jesus, yes, Jesus can do anything. He walked on water. He could have walked straight through the bars. You're getting out of here. You know, like, could have done it all. But the disciples find Jesus and say, Jesus, Jesus, John's in prison. going to head chopped off. And he's like, cool. Uh, what should I tell John? And Jesus does this phenomenal thing. He quotes Isaiah 61. We know John will know. Back to front. And Isaiah 61 says this. He says, tell John, the blind are seeing. He said, the lame are walking. The deaf are hearing. The dead are coming alive. And then he stops. Isaiah 61 doesn't finish there though. The next line that finishes it says, and the prisoners are being released from prison. So basically Jesus is saying this to God. Yes, I am the one. And you're going to die in there. But I'm worth it. Wow. 
wow, can I tell you, this is the sort of thing that's fueling my soul at the moment. And is this a fact that going, is, if everything was taken from me, is he worth it? Whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. This is not some pet talk. This is some reality going deep in our souls. Will distinguish us from every other person on the planet at this moment. So here's three questions I want to leave us with today. We can go to the questions. Number one says this. What are you counting on for your joy? Now, if I'm honest, what am I loading the base for me to be joyful and happy? Can I be very superficial sometimes? It's, do Liverpool and the Springboks win? I know it's very embarrassing for me to say that. But for a long time, my emotions and my joy levels were determined whether they would win or not. I know. I'm very immature. I need to deal with it. I have. But often, sometimes, can I be honest? My joy level is determined whether I've got more money in the bank than I've got bills to pay. And can I tell you, if you meet me on week one or week four of the month, you might meet a different game. Because I'm nervous now. My joy level, sometimes I'm counting on the owner to be in a good mood for me to be joyful. The Bible says, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. This is where it gets real. Sorry, I have to get real here. What are you counting on for your joy? It's easy to measure it. Just look at your life. Just look at what makes you happy, what makes you down in the dumps. I've had conversations with about three or four people this week around finances and the stress. And can I tell you, one guy was earning mega bucks and he's stressed about finance. The other guy's earning hardly anything and he's stressed about finance. And I've got to just say this. Are we a people who are going to allow this or this to determine our joy? We've got to take a hold of this thing. That's why the sowing in summer is huge for many of us. Second question is, what are you counting on for blessings from God? Are you counting on your blessings from God? Are you saying, God, but I tithed last month. Are you saying to God, but God, I want my health, my, the health of my family. I prayed for my kids. God, I went to church last week. Actually, was nice to that red-headed pastor. He said hi. I don't know about you. I don't want to make this frivolous, but but actually, I think in the church we are forgetting that actually Jesus said it's Christ alone. Yeah. We are new covenant people that He says to be blessed. It's Him. He is the source of all blessing. Third and finally, what are you counting on for eternal life? And I say this strongly because one day all of us will get to the time where we face come face to face with Jesus, and He'll say, "Why should I let you?" And if you and I have any other list, good person, tried hard, you know, I, I, I volunteered a lot, I was kind. If any of those things feature on our list except for, it's you alone. I've counted everything as rubbish, but it's you. There might be an answer. This is the gospel, the pure gospel. It's not about how hard we can try. It's about that he gave his life for you and I. And we have to now die to selves and pick up his life. Yeah. I land with this question. Do you know Christ? I pray that's the question you and I will ever ask. Asking it myself afresh. I'm saying, God, I want to know you. The power of your resurrection. I want to know you and, and the fellowship of your suffering. I want to know you. Basically, if I have everything or if I have nothing, I want to know you. Whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, 
rejoice. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning in a, in a sober but joyful state, we as a people have been rallied around your word. As, as almost I feel God's point is like as visiting a chiropractor and you bringing us divinely into line. And things that have been out of joint and things that have been taking our focus and the pain and the frustration and the things that we start to lean on this leg because that leg's not great and we started to walk differently. You've come and you brought conviction and clarity again. It's you. And I pray sometimes that sometimes it's a bit painful at first, but God, it brings great joy. I pray right now in every heart, we will answer these questions. I pray, God, that deep joy, wells of joy would start to bubble up inside of us. Because we are not determined. Our joy is not determined on others. It's not determined on circumstances. It's not determined what anything else happens. Our joy is in you, God. We want to know you. Every eye closed here. If you're here this morning, you're saying, I've never made a full commitment to follow him, to pick up my cross and follow Jesus. This is... The, the talk we use here. We're not trying to make more Christians. We're here pointing people to Christ to give up everything to become his disciple, his follower, his student, his apprentice. If you've never done that, and today you're saying, actually, I'm in. I want to know him. Please raise your hand high. It's not your hand that saves you. It's not your hand that gets his attention. It's our faith. But it'll help me pray. Is there anyone here this morning? I won't point you out to people. Cool. Thank you, ma'am. See that hand. Is there anyone else? Cool. Let's pray for this lady. Thank you, Father, right now. I thank you, God. I rejoice for a brave lady who's saying, actually, I want to count everything as rubbish for the sake of you. I thank you, Jesus, God, that you are, you are Lord of all. We don't have to invite you to be Lord of our life because you already are the Lord of our life. You give us life. You gave us bread so that we could choose you.